G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. Really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this podcast. And we don't ask much for a return, but we're incredibly grateful you could pop to Apple Podcasts or Acast and leave us a review. Honestly, it would only take a couple of moments of your time. A five-star review would be great. Uh, if you have a worse review to give us, why don't you email us instead? Or actually, just don't leave us a review. No, but uh, please, a five-star review would be fantastic. So uh, joining myself in the studio today, we have uh, Vicky Baldry, who's one of our uh, exotics lecturers here at the RVC and uh, I managed to track it down because normally it works in, in Camden but it's up here to talk to our final years for their elective so I'd ask her to pop into the studio and, uh, and maybe talk on this podcast so thank you very much Vicky for having your arm twisted to uh, to come in to, to talk to us today. No problem. And I thought what we'd discuss is, as we said is, is about, uh, about parrots and uh, maybe the common um, presentation findings that we, we find of, of, the, of the parrots that are presented to us of, in general practice you know what are the what are the the common things that they uh, um, they are presented for as, as well. So I know it's a quite a nebulous topic, and and probably I shouldn't necessarily refer to um, parrots in one term because I know they're all individual species, and they, <laughs> as as I've, I've been told before. But could I ask what what in the UK? Like what what are the common breeds of parrots that people actually? keep or species of parrots, sorry, that people keep? Well, I would say most commonly we see budgerigars and cockatiels. We see grey parrots and amazons. We see a fair number of cockatoos, although they tend to be a little bit high maintenance, so they're perhaps less commonly kept. Um, and then more unusual species, we might see eclectus parrots, um, we might see um, other other species of par- parakeet, um, kakarikis are quite popular. So a, a whole variety, ranging from the little budgerigars right up to, to the bigger cockatoos. Um, and I suppose I was just, the thing is, you said parakeet as well. We have a the a, a, a feral population or, or um, of, of parakeets as well. So are some of them like wildlife casualties that people bring in that think they're pets when actually they're wildlife. A bit of a yes. grey area. <laughs> it is. It is. I think that they, they all became established by escaped pets and it started in the southeast of England. Um, so there's quite a lot around London. If you go walking on Primrose Hill, there's a lovely population of, of ringneck parakeets there. Um, and in quite a lot of cities in Europe now, um, they've uh, they've got strongholds. Um, but they're also popular as, as pets. So you can see them brought in as wildlife casualties. Unfortunately, um, they are classed on Schedule 9 of the Wildlife and Countryside Act as an invasive species so you're not allowed to release them without a license so um, you've got to be a little bit cautious if they're coming in in that way um, that you stay within the law and collaborate with a wildlife rehab centres um, who, who may or may not have licenses to release them um, but that does become a little bit of a challenge but they're doing really well there's there's a lot of them about so it's quite nice to see. Absolutely I, I enjoy seeing them I had no idea about the actual connotations of what they're doing to them. <laughs> the environment but anyway they look very pretty they? Um, so that's good so so I suppose again we get back to it so if we all, we all bought a, a, a parrot uh, I suppose the first thing would be a, you know a physical exam so you, yes. in, it, or, or taking history or vice versa but I suppose maybe we'll start with history actually that sounds a bit easier so are there certain questions that you think um, people forget to ask in, in when dealing with, with parrots? Yes I think um, it's really important to know that a lot of the disease that we see in, in cat- parrots is related to their diet and their husbandry so that's really important questions to ask the most important thing is to know the species that you're dealing with and sometimes you are brought a species that you're not familiar with so train your receptionist to find out from the client what they're bringing in before they come in um, so if you're less familiar you can 
have a look, you can do some research before they arrive and you can find out what, um, what particular um, husbandry requirements they have. But overall, know what species you're dealing with and then I tend to recommend have the bird in its cage while you're talking to the owner, um, you can observe the bird in the cage without getting it out birds are masters of disguise, they hide signs of illness very readily. They'll make themselves look as well as possible. But often, if you're spending 10 minutes or so taking a full history, the bird might relax then, it might be unable to continue to make itself look well, and it might start to become apparent um, how sick the bird is, even while you're talking to the owner. Um, can can owners, um, are, are they still considered prey to their, to their pets, who, uh, sorry, predators to their pets, who will the birds to them look um, like everything? is all right so are some people quite uh, taken aback by actually how sick their their bird is yes very very commonly and that's something really important to communicate is by the time that birds look sick they're often near to death and if they're fluffed up and if they're on the bottom of the cage then they're very critically ill and often that's the first sign of illness the owner notices and um, so we can certainly start by asking the question of how long has the bird been sick but very often the owner will say I woke up this morning and, and the bird was on the bottom of the cage. What they don't realise is the bird may have been sick for days, weeks or even months prior to that, but just not shown obvious signs. And some owners are well bonded to their bird and they'll be able to tell very quickly when there's a problem. Other owners, if they bird, um, sometimes we have owners where the bird doesn't really come out of the cage, it's not really interacted with, the owner's not really touching the bird, doesn't realise that it's lost weight and the feathers conceal that, and they may have no idea that there's a serious problem. And so is it harder to ask questions regarding, because it's been, you know, we exercise dogs in, in general or, or should do, and whether respiratory rates go up or they're tireder than usual, and I imagine that's a harder thing to, to ask. So, so is there a way you ask those those questions? Um, I would ask generally, I'd, I'd start by asking about what diet the bird is fed and, and what the environment's like. Um, very commonly these birds are on a seed-based diet um, which is high in energy um, but low in some of the um, vitamins that they require. So commonly we'll see nutritional problems related to that. And we'll ask about the environment. Are there smokers in the house? Do they use aerosols? Is the bird kept in the kitchen and they have um, cooking fumes or teflon pans that can be toxic. There's quite a few clues from what's in the bird's environment. Um, but then I would ask, has the bird's um, appetite changed? Is its food intake different? Are the droppings different at home? That's something that can be easily identified by the owner. They might also say, if the bird is um, coming out of the cage and free flying in the environment, that it, the bird is out of breath when it's been flying and that it is exercise intolerant. So that certainly is a, a clinical sign that we can see. Or they might even have observed a noise with the breathing or a change of voice if the bird's vocalising or talking um, very often they'll say, do you know, he doesn't seem quite right and he stopped talking or his voice has changed. So the signs can be quite subtle, but certainly they're there if you if you ask the right questions, certainly you can deduce a lot from, from the history. So is it general that you get a bit more information about maybe the organ system that's involved in what's going on with a with a patient rather than you know in the in that initial history rather than where to look whether it's has diarrhea or um, whether there is increased respiratory rate or, or, or something else going on? Absolutely and um, we'll, we'll, we'll get that from the history. Owners often report diarrhea when in fact very commonly it's polyuria so often the droppings will look watery, the faecal component can be normal but there's actually an 
increased little pool of um, fluid around the drop-in. So that's really important to be able to differentiate um, and, and ask the owner to, to ideally bring in the newspaper from the bottom of the cage at home or bring the bird in its own cage so you can see what's been passed and, and what's going on. And so at what point would you do a physical exam and in what way do you approach that? And, and do you have any um, not cautionary tales, but I suppose concerns about uh, uh, handling the, the, the bird in general? Yeah, absolutely. I would um, assess the bird first, assess the demeanour and the respiratory effort. So if the bird's sitting on the perch and there's an obvious tail bob, you can see the bird moving backwards and forwards as, it, as it's breathing, um, then that can indicate quite significant respiratory distress. So that's a bird that I wouldn't want to handle. I'd want to put that bird straight in an oxygen-enriched environment, get it stabilised a little bit more first. Um, if the bird is more stable, then certainly we'd um, go ahead with an examination. And sometimes we'll examine the bird with the owner in the same room. Um, sometimes you can get a bit of a loss of trust between the bird and the owner if you're catching them up and handling them with the owner present. So sometimes it's easier to take them into the treatment room and examine them away from the owner. And I would give the owner the choice and explain why you're giving them the choice and, and, and what the pros and cons of each approach would be. Um, if you take them out into the treatment room, you've got oxygen on hand if there is a problem and, and you can... Um, you can deal with a, a collapse or a problem very quickly. Um, but if the bird's stable and the, the breathing is normal, then I would, once I've taken the history, assess the demeanour, I would then go ahead and, and do an examination straight away. Are there certain species that are more prone to, to act that way, to m mistrust the, the owners after that? Uh, probably some of the bigger parrots, so the cockatoos particularly, and um, they're often very highly strung, they're often very, very pair-bonded to one particular owner, which can be a, a problem in itself. Um, so I think some of the bigger parrots, probably the budgerigars, the cockatiels, tend to be a little bit less less worried about that, and they may be a little bit less pair-bonded with the owner, but it really depends on the situation and the circumstance. And when you're doing a physical exam, Vicky, where do you, where do you start then after you've got them out? Yeah, um, a systematic approach, exactly the same, follow the same principles as with dogs and cats. Start at the head, start at the beak end and, and work your way backwards. Um, we tend to restrain birds in a towel, so um, I'll use a, a little bit of paper towel or a little kitchen towel for a budgie or a cockatiel, um, a bigger hand towel maybe for a parrot, so we can use that to conceal our hand so the bird doesn't see um, the hand and become fearful of a hand coming towards them and it helps to protect us and then we can just put the towel over the back of the bird to um, enclose the wings and then we can hold the head um, basically in our hand um, and, and then lift the bird out to examine it. Really be cautious that you don't wear gloves and gauntlets when you're handling parrots because you don't have any manual dexterity, um, you can't feel what you're doing and birds breathe by opening up the rib cage. they haven't got a diaphragm so if you squeeze them um, you can really stop them from being able to breathe properly. So we want to be just cautious with that and then we can be systematic starting from the beak and, and, and working backwards. I suppose the, the hard thing with, with uh, any idea, sorry, with any new discipline or new species is, is what's normal. So are there, are there things that people might commonly uh, not uh, understand what is, what is normal? Yeah. Um, overall, things, I would say things, things tend to look fairly obviously abnormal if they're abnormal. So we might see changes to the feather colour or quality. You might see an overgrown beak that it just looks different from how you would expect the beak to look. Um, when you look inside the mouth, um, the tongue and the membranes can be quite pigmented, but you shouldn't see any, um, any plaques, any um, sort of yellow lesions, any proliferative lesions in there. Um, 
when we're then examining over the bird, we can look for symmetry, so we'll, we'll um, extend the wings, we can assess the feathering, we can look to see if, if both sides are symmetrical, when we're palpating we can look for symmetry. And again, even with the eyes and, and the nostrils, um, we can see rhinoliths building up, which are concretions of material that can obstruct and cause swelling to a, um, a nostril. They're often unilateral, so often you can see that if we lose that symmetry, we can, we can detect that there's something that's not right, and then we can investigate that further. And uh, how about palpating in general, like palpating the abdomen? What do you, what do you expect uh, yeah. someone to, to feel or or, or not? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I would start with feeling the keel, and there are body condition scores available for birds, so you should feel a nice bit of muscling on each side of the keel. The keel shouldn't be too prominent, um, so if you think um, if you think about the, the pectoral muscle on each side, um, it should be coming together quite nicely. You should be able to feel the keel easily, but if it's if it's very prominent and there's no muscling, then the bird's too thin. Sometimes you'll feel subcutaneous fat deposits, or you'll almost get a cleft where the keel is instead of being able to feel the keel bone. That's an indication that the bird is too fat. When you're then progressing down to feel the sealum, the sternum is quite long. When you're feeling the salomic cavity, it should be concave. You should be able to um, just feel that um, the tissues just go, go in underneath the sternum and there shouldn't be any swelling um, or anything there. There should just be a small hollow space. If there's fluid in the coelom or if there's a mass or something else is enlarged or dilated, you'll often feel that it becomes convex, so you'll feel it bulging out. In some species of bird, um, you can get hernias to the body wall where you'll feel um, uh, tissues, um, soft tissues, um, sort of bulging out underneath the sternum. So feel for it to be convex. You should be able to not really feel anything at all. If there's something there, then it's likely to be abnormal. Okay. And is, is there any tests that you would quite often do or or, um, or, or not, as the, as the case may be? Are there other things you would commonly do within that physical exam? Yes, it depends on it depends on the reason for presentation. Um, some easy non-invasive tests that we can do: we can um, we can look at samples of the droppings. We can look at um, samples from the crop. If we're thinking of other tests um, in terms of sort of our neurological examination or, or, or other procedures that are probably a little bit more limited in birds, but um, potentially um, with some species we might flight test them depending on, on the species and if we're worried about trauma, particularly with wildlife casualties, so maybe a little bit less so than w with pet parrots, um, and um, we might just have them on the floor and assess their ambulation generally um, and, and how they're walking. Um, from the point of view of other tests, um, probably nothing specific. We can perform an ophthalmological exam, so we can use our, our direct ophthalmoscope to assess um, the back of the eye to look for signs of trauma or problems there. But once we've done that, we're starting to get into the realms probably of needing to stabilise the bird and then do more, more invasive diagnostics. Another common um, presenting problems, I know we, we should probably think of more of a you know, clinical reasoning and work out what, what's going on, but are, are there common more common problems in certain species than, than uh, other species? Definitely. A, a problem-solving approach it can be a bit more challenging in birds because they tend to just present off their food and fluffed up, maybe on the bottom of the cage. It can be really difficult to ascertain which body system is involved. There will be some clues, um, but even if we're seeing respiratory signs, it might be because we've got a space-occupying mass in the ceiling that's pressing on the air sacs. So we might just have... <clears throat> Some presentations might be just slightly different from, from other species in that respect. Um, so I guess we would start from working out what we can see, and that's going to direct us into, into what more tests we want to do.
Okay. And, and what, what are the so the common problems that you you would you would often see in I suppose like a general practice or yes. people bringing parrot, parrots? Um, mm. One particularly common problem with grey parrots is they can get deficient in calcium, and that is quite that's quite easy to treat. Um, in a, it's quite a classic presentation. If you are presented with a collapsed grey parrot, um, we want to do our history, our clinical examination, everything we've discussed, but. Commonly, they're very low in calcium. Their ionised calcium levels very low, so they'll respond very quickly to treatment with calcium. We can use calcium gluconate that we'd have in the practice for um, uh, for hypercalcemia in dogs, so we can use that. And those are nice cases that you can get quite a quick resolution. And you can get a bird that looks very collapsed, might even be having seizures, can respond very quickly. So it's important to know about some of those types of problem that can be easily treated um, compared to collapse in another species which could still be a calcium problem but there may be something else going on but grey parrots seem to have um, a particular need for higher levels of calcium in the diet and for UV lighting so UVB lighting to help with their vitamin D and calcium levels so, particularly related to where they're from in the, in the wild and so again so <coughs> asking questions excuse me about uh, about their how they're kept and yes. the environment they're kept including including light I suppose I thought light was quite uh, more of a reptile question to ask but, but definitely with birds as well absolutely um all birds will benefit from uv lighting and specific bird lamps are available so a lot of owners do use them um, it's good for their vision it's good for their preening behavior for their general enrichment but also the uvb component really crucial for vitamin d and calcium the gray parrots are the classic that, that have a really important need for this but, but other species will benefit um, so so definitely worth providing and, and advising owners to provide that so is, the, is there a, a stepwise approach that you you might have so you as you said, it's very difficult. You can't, although you can pattern recognise, maybe with uh, with collapse uh, African greys. I'd say it's really it's really difficult to do that. So, what what are your are your next steps to to look at the crop or to look at the feces or to take a radiograph or how how do you decide um, what what to do what to do next? We would start generally with a sick bird. We just start with generic supportive care for the first 12 to 24 hours to get them stabilised for more to, to um, tolerate more diagnostics. Um, so we get them into a nice, um, quiet, warm place. We've got incubators that we use to give them extra warmth. We might be giving them fluids. Um, and we might be crop tubing them with nutritional support. From there, if I've got a bird that's vomiting or regurgitating, I'm going to look at a sample from the crop, and I could do that on, on day one at the first presentation. If there's changes to the droppings, or if I'm worried that there might be a bacterial or yeast infection in the intestinal tract, then we can certainly um, stain up a, a faecal sample. So that's straightforward immediately. Once we've stabilised them, for a, a generic sick bird, they often present looking very similar. Our standard workup would be to take a blood sample for haematology and biochemistry, including ionised calcium, that's important, um, take radiographs and potentially perform endoscopy. So perform endoscopy of the air sacs to assess the organs, assess what's going on inside in more detail. Um, doing everything in one go is, there's, there's pros and cons. It would be nice to do everything in a stepwise fashion to get the results of the first test before the next. But in reality, because the bird's going to need a general anaesthetic for the procedure, um, we tend to do everything together. And taking a blood sample, taking the x-rays and performing endoscopy should take about 15, maybe 20 minutes. It's quite quick to do if everything's ready to go. So I tend to do that all in one go. That gives me a lot of information then. We can we can move forward and, and do more if we need to. So if, 
just to take a step back, so if you said supportive care for 12, 24 hours, see how they respond in, in general. Um, so that supportive care, so if you wanted to give uh, fluids, how, how, do you, how do you do that? Yeah, it depends on how sick the bird is. If they're off their food but they're relatively stable, we might simply be crop tubing them and um, you can inexpensively buy uh, a set of stainless steel crop tubes. There's not really anything that I've successfully used as an alternative to those because they've got such a strong beak, they tend to bite through drip tubing and other things that you can use. Um, so it is worth um, investing in some crop tubes. But you can um, then crop tube, depending on how sick the bird is, starting with fluids or with the liquid critical care diets um, that you can get. Most practices have got the VETAR critical care formula um, that can be used, but there's other um, uh, critical care diets for longer term use that are helpful. Um, to give parenteral fluids, depending on the size of the bird, very often we'll give subcutaneous fluids and there's quite a nice little fold of skin in the inguinal region, the precrural fold, just at the top of the leg. We can just, a little bit of surgical spirit on a cotton bud, just to, to wet down the feathers, we can see the skin, just slide a needle under the skin and you can see a bleb of fluid forming as you give the fluids. Pre-warm them so you're not going to cool the bird down too much, especially for smaller birds, um, and, and then they can be absorbed quite quickly and quite well. And that's really, really straightforward to do. In bigger birds, if you can get IV access or even an introsseous cannula into the um, into the distal ulna, that's also really helpful. But subcutaneous root works nicely as well. And is there a, an amount, or just to see a bleb? I mean, if you, I know, it's quite. Uh, we tend um, to use a mil per hundred grams okay. um, as a as a general rule of thumb, and depending on how dehydrated the bird is, and also how often we want to handle the bird. So we might want to try to just give um, our medications twice a day. We might find that we'll give three times. A day if we've got a really critical case that, that needs more regular fluids and feeding. And uh, I imagine that a lot of vets like throwing a few different drugs and if they're going to handle, it's probably to do with a number of things, lack of confidence, experience, uh, but a number of things. Are, are there, is, is that a, a, a problem or do you think that, you know, we should we not give antibiotics, should we give antiparasitic drugs, should we just hold off for, for that sort of stabilisation time? I think it really, it does depend a little bit on the presentation. Um, often if I've got a really sick bird and I think there might be a bacterial infection, I will start a broad spectrum antibiotic because you haven't got that much time to lose. So I'm not saying that every sick bird presenting should be given antibiotics, but if it's a hospital inpatient, and you think there's something bacterial going on, I'd probably start with something like um, amoxicillin clavulanate, something, a, a generic broad-spectrum first, first line. Um, and then other treatments will depend. If I've got um, weakness on neurological signs in a species where I think I've got low calcium, I'll automatically give calcium. I'd love to have bloods first to prove it, so that I at least know that I've treated something and I've got a reason why the bird's looking better. Um, but if you can't, then I would give calcium straight away if, if needs be. Um, and analgesia is really important as well. Um, birds respond to opioids a little bit differently from other species. They have mainly um, kappa receptors, so we tend to use butorphanol as our first line for analgesia, which is a little bit um, against what we would do in mammals. Um, but butorphanol works well, um, and meloxicam is very, very commonly used as well. So depending on the species, I would um, consult a formulary for the most up-to-date doses. There's lots of research being done in analgesia in birds, and lots of new doses and new information coming out. But we tend to use a combination of um, meloxicam and butorphanol, depending on what type of pain we're dealing with and how severe the pain is. And are there um, pain scoring 
charts or is it quite difficult because if they go from looking fine to ruffled up and there's not a lot of in between is it quite yeah. difficult to assess actual yeah, analgesia? It's very difficult there's, there's pain scoring charts for small mammals now but um, much less so is available for birds um, they're in development I think we will be having um, more options in the future the main thing is try to assess the bird when it doesn't know that you're watching it. Um, if you can assess through a, a, a window in a door or in some way that um, the bird thinks it's on its own, often they'll look more sick when you're not there. As soon as you walk into the room, they sit up, they look great, they say, no, I'm fine, there's nothing wrong. They don't want to make themselves appear unwell to a predator. So try to assess them from a distance. And we're assessing just their general posture and demeanor. So we tend to be um, pain scoring them more on behaviors. Um, so how they look, what their posture's like, um, do they look hunched up, um, or are they hiding, or are they up on their perch, um, looking with, with the feathers smoothed down, looking looking fitter and looking better in themselves. Okay, um, and if you uh, feel anything in the in the sealum cavity, are, are, are tumours quite common in in birds, or more more likely to be egg bound? Do, are there are there common presentations for a, a distended sealum? Yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's quite a few possibilities, and it depends a little bit on the size of the bird. Um, budgies are quite notorious for getting testicle tumours, um, so, and that can sometimes cause a, a space-occupying mass effect. Um, the small cytocines, so uh, budgies and cockatiels, and some of the parakeets, are a little bit more prone to being egg-bound than some of the bigger birds. We see egg-binding in bigger parrots, but it's most common um, in the smaller birds, and so we might be able to palpate the egg there. Um, other causes of fluid would be liver disease, heart disease, or coelomitis, and that might be a reproductive disease. So we might get um, coelomitis relate, related to internal ovulation or other oviductal pathology. There might not be an egg there, but we might still have um, still have ovarian uh, oviductal disease um, causing causing fluid buildup or causing a mass type of effect. So probably quite a lot of differentials and again probably imaging is going to be the next step to to work out what's going on to help you with that and when we said before about maybe diarrhea might be misinterpreted as mm. polyuria so do you, do you have a, a a an approach to, to polyuria as, as well yes um it's important to to define it um, so to be sure that it's polyuria not diarrhea and also to bear in mind that birds when they come into the hospital when they're stressed will produce more watery droppings so assess what the droppings are like at home if you can do and question the owner you know the droppings look quite watery in the cage here are they like this at home or are they more normal very often the owners will say to me oh no they're completely normal at home and um, you've got to decide how vigilant and observant the owner is to, to pick it up and um, but usually they they will have a good idea of what's going on if they're truly polyuric, um, then infections are possible, um, renal disease is possible, um, diabetes, um, not common, but we can see it in um, overweight budgies and cockatiels particularly. Um, if they get hepatic lipidosis, sometimes they'll get a secondary diabetes and they'll become PUPD. Um, I had a galar cockatoo recently with PUPD secondary to diabetes, which we suspected was secondary to zinc toxicosis. So there's a few sort of weird and wonderful diagnoses that we might see, um, but um, a standard approach, again, probably um, assessing the droppings um, grossly and maybe microscopically, maybe doing urinalysis if you've got enough of a separate urine fraction, but it's often contaminated by the faecal component, so it's difficult. But then we're moving really on to blood work and um, potentially imaging as well. 
And if you if you go back a step, because I mentioned a lot of um, people, if they're presented with a bird that don't have um, uh, significant support or, or experience about handling these, but I suppose some confidence that maybe if they you know try and give some fluids and warm environment mm. and support the the bird for 12 24 hours and either it will improve or or not and then at not maybe more of the time to to uh, ask for ask for help because do you find that some things will sort themselves out like a majority of, of, uh, of things we see in other species as well i i guess in some ways maybe less so because the less commonly we less commonly see um dietary indiscretions or, or other things like that that might be a little bit more self-limiting. More commonly, if birds are ill, there is something potentially more serious going on, or at least if they're ill enough for the owner to, to notice that. But the most important thing is to take a really thorough history and, and do a basic clinical examination. Get the bird admitted, start some fluids, start pain relief if you think it's painful, a warm environment, some nutritional support. If it's um, dyspneic, then providing oxygen, and then, that, then you can take a take a deep breath you can go and look things up you can ask colleagues you can refer to the literature you can make much more of a plan all you've got to do in the immediate situation is get that information get the bird admitted and just start to get it stabilized and you can always buy yourself more time with that um, maybe with the exception of just remembering to give calcium if you think that that's needed because that's going to give an immediate effect maybe starting antibiotics if you suspect a bacterial infection but otherwise um, get them in get that supportive care going and then you can ask for help you can refer or you can make a bit more of a plan I think that's uh, that's great. Thank you, Vicky. I, I, um, I suppose I was going to ask, but that was, what, what percentage of your consults have a behavioural component or dermatological component in in general? Um, oh, that's a good question, um, and it's it's hard to say. We do see quite a lot of feather destructive behaviour in birds, and that's very commonly due to a combination of factors so usually there is some underlying health problem so it's unusual to be a purely behavioral problem if a bird is chewing or, or plucking out its feathers and um, so we always need to be really thorough that we're ruling out underlying medical problems before we look at just behavior but very often if there is a medical problem it's happening because there's problems with the diet, problems with the environment um, that are then maybe leading on to secondary medical conditions which are then leading to, to pain or discomfort um, which then lead to chewing and plucking out of the feathers. Sometimes it's more obviously behavioural and again that might be something to determine when you're taking the history that it might have been a sudden onset behaviour when the owner went away or when the owner required um, another animal, a, a dog or a cat or something that was causing stress to the bird. Um, there might be something that, that links in with when that behaviour has started that could be more of a behavioural problem but I would say the majority of feather destructive behaviours that I see are related um, much more to an underlying health problem and mostly multifactorial. And if you correct, if you correct the diet, the environment, and get enrichment into these birds. And thinking about the fact that they spend 80% of their time in the wild foraging, and in captivity, they're sitting on a perch with a bowl of seeds next to them, they can fill their crop in about 10 minutes. And then what are they gonna do for the rest of the hours of the day? So as the more foraging behaviors and enrichment we can give them, the better the chances are that they're gonna have good behavior and that we're not gonna see further destructive behavior.
and also that we're not going to see secondary um, medical problems if they're on an appropriate, well-balanced diet. And just and just sort of finally, um, the forgive my ignorance about this, but but uh, are there routine sort of para- anti-parasitic medications that people should give citizens in captivity or or specifically, um, parasites are really uncommon. Um, we may see um, scaly face mites, um, Nimbidocoptes, um, which is seen more commonly in small citizens, so mostly uh, budgerigars, maybe some um, um, some of the smaller parakeets, um, but otherwise they're unusual. Maybe in aviary birds, if there's contact with wild birds and potential environmental contamination, but in pet birds in the house, no routine worming um, or ectoparasite control is needed, and I would want to base treatment on, on diagnosing a problem because it's really unusual. Thank you very much for that, and I think we'll uh, wrap it up there. But definitely, I wouldn't mind uh, um, if you have time, some other pre- period of time, to get you back in the studio and ask maybe um, more about certain specific diseases might be uh, might be beneficial. Thank you very much. So we'll wrap it up there, and, and thank you for your time to, to, today, Vicky, again, um, and thank you for listening. So don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device, and that way you don't even have to worry about um, missing a podcast. If you can leave us a review, that would be great. Tell your friends, vet friends, any friends, it doesn't really matter. And we'll play some um, uh, show notes on the RBC pages. So just type in RBC Clinical Podcast into your search engine of choice and it should be top of the tree. So if you have any comments and suggestions of this podcast, please get in touch. You can either email dbarfield at rbc.ac.uk or tweet at Don Barfield. Until next time, bye-bye.